Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. You can't have the Pretender's first album. That's mine. I bought it. You did not. The catchphrases. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? And the wannabes. Sometimes I see you dance around the house in my underwear. Doesn't make me Madonna. Never will. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And Brad in L.A. And today we talk to Berlin guitarist and co-founder David Diamond. I'm alone, sitting with my empty glass. My four walls follow me through my past. I was on a Paris train. Stuck in the 80s is now listener-supported via Patreon. Join us for VIP Zoom happy hours and more when you join at patreon.com slash stuckinthe80spodcast. I remember searching for the perfect words. I was hoping you might change your mind. I remember a soldier sleeping next to me. Right. Hey gang, we have a fun show this week. David Diamond, who's the guitarist, former keyboardist, and co-founder of the band Berlin, joined me for a nice long conversation this week. Uh, it's something that he and I had talked about a couple years ago, and we kept I kept wanting to talk to him. I, I knew he was a great guy. Like I chatted with him, gosh, pretty much every yeah. year that Berlin's been on the 80s. It's hard to right? tell. Like, was he just being nice, or did he really want to talk to you? And I, oh, I think no. I think he wanted to talk to you, Steve. He did, and he and he, he we could have talked for like three hours easily. Um, but uh, we talked about everything. We talked about how he got his start in music, how he was nearly the member of not one, but two other bands that are now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, that's that's going to blow your mind. It is. And of course, we talked about Berlin, the band he co-founded in Orange County, California, the most unlikely of places, with John Crawford. Brad. Z John Crawford? Okay, John Wilder, write us out of this one. John Wilder? John Wilder? <laughs> we talk about how he's handling quarantining during a pandemic, how he spends his free time flying airplanes for shelter pets. That is an amazing story. And yeah, he's uh, also running for office. So he'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. I think at one point he even tried to convince me to take flying lessons again, which is never going to happen. Guys, it's a really fun interview. And afterwards, we'll have seggies, seggies, and more seggies. Listener mailbox. Mystery movie moment, name that 80s tune, and just about anything else we can think to shove in here. But for now, sit back and enjoy this amazing conversation with Berlin's David Diamond. All right. What's going on? Oh, man. It's life in living at home. When when all this shit went down, I was thinking, you know, I would not be – this is the beginning of this – I was thinking, I wouldn't be surprised if the next time we play live is on that cruise again in 2021. Yeah. Right. You know, and so I kind of, in the back of my head, as, the, as the, the year continued to unfold, I started thinking that's more and more likely. And then when that was sort of pulled out from underneath us, it was like, damn, that's, ah, I don't know. It just, it was, that, that was a real hard one. We had, we had a lot of great shows booked this year that got canned. But um, 
but and we kind of knew that they would you know just because of the timing of everything but that one really hurt <laughs> yeah but yeah it's like okay well but i just moments ago <clears throat> excuse me i was on a call with john and terry um we actually have uh, a show that is booked in november <laughs> that's not been canceled yet yeah, and we have yeah. one in in october that has not been canceled yet which is really a kind of a strange thing for us so we're kind of, you know, because we, we need to get together and rehearse. The last time we played was on the eighties cruise. I yeah. Mean, yeah. That was, I mean, I can't do that math, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. Six so, months. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, we, it's a, we were talking about like, what, when should we, should we plan a rehearsal? And it just kind of like, cause earlier uh, in the week, I got an email from our, our tour manager uh, asking me to confirm flights. And at first I thought, Oh, ha ha, that's hysterical. And then it was like, oh, you're serious about this? He's like, yeah, it hasn't been, this one hasn't been canceled. Like, oh yeah. gosh, okay, then I guess, yeah. When you're a band like Berlin and you've, you've played together for so long, but but you don't, but it's been a while now. And, and obviously you had that, that long period off, but before you reformed, I mean, how often do you have to, to rehearse for shows these days? Usually, I mean, it, it really depends on how much time we've had off. And in this case, I don't, I don't think we've ever had this much time off. So um, we're, we're planning on uh, at least a full day um, and maybe uh, we will do that because the, this first one that we've got coming up and I, I want to mention it cause I, I it probably going to get canceled because it's really only three weeks out from where we're talking today. Um, it's not a super long set. I think it's like an hour long set. So we could, we could hammer that out uh, in a day of rehearsal. And then we will most likely, um, as we get back into the, the longer, the 90 minute and longer sets, uh, we'll likely do more rehearsal. Um, because we, we've also, in, in during the downtime, we, we didn't just do nothing. We've actually done some, uh, uh, some tweaking of the, of the, um, the show itself. So we've done some new videos uh, for the sort of the backdrop thing, uh, which look really cool. Um, and a little bit of the, on the audio side. And, and, and uh, so it, it, we've, we've done some stuff during the downtime, but we're kind of, to be honest for this next sort of smaller show, we're thinking, well, we might just kind of keep it the way it was <laughs> rather, <laughs> rather than open a whole can of worms of, of introducing a bunch of, a bunch of new stuff. So yeah, I, I always thought the the coolest thing about your set, uh, and I and I I remember I, I I saw Berlin at the Hollywood Bowl like bef- before the reunion. Uh, this was probably oh gosh I don't know eight years ago, and they came out and you guys go through three big songs right off the bat. Like you know everybody else opens up with oh here's something from our new album because you're going to have to clap because it's our first song and then we'll we'll hit you with something that you know for the second song and then we'll do something more obscure for the third but but berlin comes out there and it's just like nope you know words you know this and that you know three songs right off the bat and you're just i remember the first time i saw you on the 80s cruise and you did that and everyone else just kind of flipped out as well i mean it's 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 gutsy to come out there and play like the, the biggest hits right up front well, our, our audience is a lot older than it used to be, so we want to make sure we get those hits done before people fall asleep. <laughs> so it's, uh, but no, I mean, it's also just kind of like, you know, it gets people in the mood, you yeah. know? So it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's I, I don't think there's a lot of strategy behind it other than we just feel like, you know, those songs just sort of fit well together. They do. It, it, 
it's a great start of the show. I, when I talked to Terry a few years ago before the band was going to do a gig at Epcot and I, I'd, I had asked her about like that, that first eighties cruise performance, you know, were you caught off guard by the, the reaction of the crowd? She's like, yeah, actually I was, mm. <laughs> but I thought it was a really eight, 11 PM performance, general admission, you know, second night or first night of the cruise. I mean, everybody was really amped and it was just, you know, took off from there. Yeah. I mean, that's the the thing about the eighties cruise, which is kind of what makes it sort of tough to know that we're going to miss a year of that is that it really, I mean, there's a whole aspect of this when we play live now where we feel sort of reunited with our fan base because it's, you know, it's like, you know, like, you know, they, most of these people were around in, in 83, 84, 85, you know, and that like in, when we got, when we got going um, and then here we are like a hundred years later and we're all survivors. We're, you know, um, and uh, uh, there's a kinship there that makes it a lot of fun um, all the time. But the eighties cruise is kind of like a subset of that kinship because it's like people that you vacation with, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's like, Hey, how you doing? You know, <laughs> I remember you from last time. <laughs> so it, yeah, it was kind of sad. To me. And then you mentioned Hollywood bowl. That was one of the ones we had to cancel this, this year. And, and, um, uh, and what was it? You mentioned another one. Just, I, I was thinking that there was another one that you just, mentioned. Oh, that, well, there was an Epcot one. Epcot, right. That was the other one we also had to cancel this year so yeah it's, it's rough a lot, of, a lot of we and we had a show with we we're going to do another show with blondie in dallas and that got canceled and it's it's just it, it was really unfortunate because we you know transcendence came out la- transcendence has already been out for a year which is crazy i know because it feels like it just came out and and uh, this was like august of 2019 and you know, we start tour and we did the, the B-52s and OMD tour. And then, you know, we go on and we do, you know, we're just getting our kind of our momentum going for the, <laughs> for touring on that record. And then it's like the whole world shuts down. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, come on, we want to get out there. You're used to touring. It gets yanked out from under you. So then how do you, how are you spending your time these days? Um, to be honest with you, I'm running a campaign. I'm running for a uh, the Truckee Tahoe Airport District Board, and I've never in my life done anything that was so time consuming. Wow! As running, a, I've never run a campaign before. You know, I've never done the whole political like you know office thing. Um, um, so this has been very very time consuming. Presumably now through November fourth, I guess. Well, it'll all shut down. Um, so I've been doing that. And before that, uh, we were, like I was saying, we were working on, on some of the, uh, the, the visual elements for the show. Um, and I'm doing the video stuff and that sort of thing. And when we're doing arrangements, I'm doing, uh, the arrangements, you know, for the computer tracks that we use. Um, so that was, that was kind of keeping me busy for the, the first part of the downtime, so how long how long have you been into flying? I've actually just celebrated my twentieth anniversary as a pilot. Wow! Um, yeah, it, it um, it, it's it. This is 
it's, it's something I've wanted to do since I was a kid. In fact, the first time that I ever flew in a small airplane was in East Lansing, Michigan, um, on tour with Berlin during uh, for the uh, Pleasure Victim tour. Um, and I met a, a guy who was a, he, <laughs> he was the bartender at the Holiday Inn that we were staying at. And he also happened to be a flight instructor at the airport <laughs> next door. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so he, he said like, Oh yeah, I'll come to the airport tomorrow and I'll, I'll take you up. Uh, so I did. And I thought that was just the most wonderful thing. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I do that. And then primarily most of my flights now, I, in fact, like based on last year, about 90% of my flight hours are for, uh, pilots and paws or different animal rescue organizations, uh, just doing kind of animal transport stuff. So yeah, majority of it. I, I followed all that on Facebook. It's really interesting to see that. That's a, that's a great program. It, it really is. It's, 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 it, um, I mean, not to get, I don't want to get political or get like Debbie Downer on the whole thing, but there are so many amazingly wonderful animals uh, that are, that end up in shelters for all of the reasons you would never expect. It's, it's not that these animals are hostile or dangerous or, They've got cooties or anything like that. In some cases, it's just, you know, breeders can't sell an animal and the animal's getting too old. So they dump the animal in a shelter and it's a purebred shepherd or a purebred husky or a purebred something else. Um, and, uh, and other times it's like a fantastic older dog and the dog's guardian died, you know, and there was no one to take care of the dog and the poor thing ends up in a shelter. Yeah. So this is why, like, I, I just beg people, if you are looking for companionship, to please look at local shelters before you buy from a breeder. And if you don't find anything in a local shelter, look at shelters farther away and remember that organizations like Pilots and Paws can transport the, uh, the pup or the kitty or the whatever it is to you. Um, so it's, it's it, I just, I'm really passionate about that sort of thing. Oh, no. I mean, uh, my fiance and I, we have a dog and she got it. She's in New York and she got him from a shelter in Georgia. So yeah, you, sometimes you have to go a ways to, to get, you know, your new best friend. I did a transport. In fact, one of my early transports for Pilots and Paws, the dog originated eight hours outside of Istanbul, Turkey. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and it was going to a couple in Provo, Utah. So they, they fell in love with this dog online and, uh, and then this uh, working with this awesome organization uh, in Turkey um, managed to basically coordinate the international flight. And I was to pick up the dog in San Francisco and I was going to fly the dog to Provo, Utah. And then my plane went down for maintenance at the last minute. So I was like, well, the dog is actually like, you know, it's coming from Turkey. It's not like it's, it has a lot of friends in San Francisco that it can sort of <laughs> hang out with while my airplane's getting worked on. So I just ended up driving to San Francisco, picking up the dog. And I, and then we just road tripped it all the way to Provo, Utah. But uh, yeah, so we take them like long, long, long distances. Excellent. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's funny you mentioned that, that you have been flying for 20 years. I, 20 years ago, I took flying lessons um, it, it was something I'd always wanted to do since I was a kid. I always wanted to be an airline pilot. And I, I, it was about the time of the dot-com bubble. So freelance money was plentiful. And so I, I decided I was going to go and, you know, get certified. And I took about 
I don't know, six lessons right up to the point. And I did ground school, which I had no feel for whatsoever, but I took my lessons until the point where you have to practice the stalls. And that was it. I mean, once we landed the plane, I was like, I, I'm, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I, I love flying to this day and I love watching flying videos, but man, like the world is a better place without me, you know, behind the yoke. <laughs> well, there, I mean, there's like, you know, it's like the idea with the practicing of the stalls is that, so you know how to get out of them if they ever happen, but it's I know. Not, not really a goal. Like, but that was just the that was just the moment where it had all been building up that I was just like you know what I don't feel like I'm getting the feel for this I don't feel like like there's just there's sometimes there's things that you like like you know like trigonometry or calculus where you you know you should be able to tackle it but something in your brain just says not nah, not gonna happen and I just I could never I don't know if it was the the flying instructor didn't have the 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 ability to to pull me across the finish line. But um, no, I, that was it. I remember flying in a, a Cessna 172 over the Gulf of Mexico. And every time that uh, the little alarm would go off that you're about to stall, I would just, you know, turn into a flop sweat and nearly pass out. <laughs> I think he had to land the plane that day. And I think I had to go get my blood pressure checked daily for about a week. Well, it was, I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, my, my flight training was really difficult for me, too. I mean, I, I write, ended up writing a book about it, um, which is called Flight Training, Taking the Short Approach, in case anybody's looking up for that book. It's available on Amazon and other resellers. I'll read it. But, uh, but it was mainly because of that, because it's like for my whole life, I mean, I'm not like the smartest guy in the room ever, um, maybe sometimes, but most of the time not. Um, but pretty much my whole life, everything I ever really wanted to do came to me, you know, like when I wanted to, I wanted to play music and it's like, so I learned how to play guitar and I learned how to play keys and bass and, and it's it, the stuff. I mean, I never, you know, not everybody would ever hire me as a musician. I'm not that good, but um, yeah, but I learned how to do like enough to do what I wanted to do. Uh, and I really always wanted to learn how to fly an airplane. And when I got into my flight training, I just found there were certain aspects of it that were very difficult for me. Um, and I realized it was just kind of the way I learned um, it, it, or the, the way I learned anything is the first thing is I have to have context about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Like what, what's the point for what we're trying to do? What is our goal? Um, and a lot of education, like especially in the flight training, you don't, you don't, you're not given the context. You're just starting like, you know, they start telling you things. You have to memorize this thing. And then later on at some point in time, you kind of get the, the context of it, you know, and yeah. it's like, oh, okay, I get it. And it would have been easier for me. It might be maybe for you, Steve, the same way if they had sort of per given that perspective a little bit differently. Um, he, he did a pretty good job of that. I, I really honestly think that there's just some things <laughs> that, that no matter how much I want to will myself to do it, you know, you, you come across and, and, maybe, and maybe it's a character flaw for me that I, that I will find an approach where I just give up on something. But <clears throat> I remember being on top of the, the Cessna one day, you know, and I'm like, how do we, how do we check the gas level? Cause there wasn't a gas gauge in there. And he's like, well, we get on top of the, we open the thing and we shake the wing side to side and we see where the gas level is. I'm like, you mean we checked the gas level in this plane the same way I checked the gas level in my lawnmower. He's like, yeah, pretty much. And I think that was another one of those moments too, where I was just like, okay, 
<laughs> okay, okay, okay. See, you know, now, in fairness to the Cessna 172, there is there are gas gauges, but they're just not reliable. That's why. Oh, we, that's, that's that makes why you we feel better. Physically. <laughs> Well, because it's not like you're driving in a car and like the fuel light comes on and you're like, oh, okay, I gotta, I guess yeah. I need to find a filling station. It's like you're yeah. flying and there's no fuel light and <laughs> it just gets quiet. For, you know? and, and, and for context, my, my uncle um, who passed away maybe 10 years ago, he was a, a lifelong flyer and he, twice he ran out of gas in flights and had to bring it in for a, a rough landing, both times making the news. So, so my immediate family was not, the, the most encouraging <laughs> when I chose to pursue <laughs> that hobby. They're, they're much happier with me being an eighties podcaster. Now <laughs> I think <laughs> you don't have to shake the wing as much to find out if I'm out of gas. <laughs> so that's, that's true. I guess it, maybe it's, there's, maybe it's a little safer, but I don't know. Is it as much fun? I get to talk to you. I, I mean, I guess we, we might've, we might've eventually uh, talked to, if we were, uh, you know, flying, both flying. I don't know. You, you you mentioned the you mentioned learning to to play you know the guitar and and keyboards and bass. When did that happen? Like what what, what point in your life did you get turned on to music? And do you, do you remember what the 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 spark was? Yeah, it was a Tuesday. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I I was fourteen. I guess I, I was I was learning uh, guitar first and and. And I played, I, I started a band with my, my uh, best friend, my childhood best friend. Um, and, uh, and we called the band Airborne. And then there was another band called Airborne, but that's somehow that didn't matter to us. <laughs> but so we had the, our little, it was like a little trio. I guess you'd, yeah, it could have been a power trio if we'd had any power, but it was just three guys playing instruments badly um, and played in like a, a junior high talent show. <laughs> yeah. That's and we awesome. we played "Take It or Leave It" by the Runaways. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> and I'm sure I, <laughs> I'm sure the adults were like listening to the lyrics, going, "What, they, what are they? What are they saying?" <laughs> so I guess that that looking back on this, that set me up pretty well for Berlin. But um, yeah, so I played guitar, and then I I I switched to bass in local bands because um, I was not a good enough guitar player, but I could manage a bass. Um, and then uh, when uh, synthesizers were popping around and I was becoming fascinated by them, uh, um, I, I wrangled my stepfather to lend me the money to buy a Profit 5. And here's the thing, Steve. He would never I, – I, if I had tried to get $10 out of him, he would have <laughs> said, no, earn it. And, and this one night I go in and I'll never forget for the whole rest of my life, $3,128 was the purchase price of a profit five that included the tax um, because I did all the research. And I remember walking into his office and asking him if I could borrow the money. And I was probably, I guess I was, yeah, I probably was either late 16 or 17 at the time. Um, and, uh, and he asked me like why I wanted it. And I said, because I want to, I, I think I want a career in music and this will help me. Um, and he said, I'm, I'm going to lend you the money because I believe in you. I think that you will have a career in music. And um, so he, I don't like, <laughs> I'm not going to get emotional about this, but get, because it really, it was really impactful. I, I, I got the, the profit and, you know, I learned how to program it and, and that's what led me to to joining Berlin. And this this whole 
time frame was like like super condensed. It prob- I probably had the, the profit maybe six months before I met John Crawford and we did tracks on Pleasure Victim and um, and so that when when Pleasure Victim finally went gold and we had the like you know we were asked you know, for the, you know, the people that we wanted to give gold records to. So my stepdad was the number one on my list. Oh, that, that, is, that, is, that is really great. That is a great story. Yeah, it was, and it's like, look back on it. And, and my, my stepsister and I are, are still very, very close. Um, and we still occasionally joke about like the, I, I like, we can't believe he ever did that. <laughs> you know, but it, 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 my life would be very different had he not, had he not done that. So it's, you know. But was, uh, I probably would have ended up in Def Leppard or, or Jones <laughs> and the Blackhearts. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard those two stories, but that's actually a possibility. So, really? You, there was actually a possibility you would end up in those other two bands? It, now, now I got to hear the story. It was Okay, so this was the funny thing. is that Terry and I have joked about this because before Berlin, like she had her Princess Leia audition and she right. had her acting career. She had her whole, you know, and before, before Berlin um, – I had these two opportunities um, to just to join Def Leppard and Def Leppard was not a band at that point in time. They were just some kids getting together in the UK um, and then the Joan Jett thing. And so the, the, and so Terry and I have often joked. It was like, it was like, if there, if there was a God, the God was like, you know, come on, I'm trying to make you guys famous. Would you just like stick with something here? (laughs) (laughs) So what it what um and it was for me it was through the same guy his name is Dutch Michaels and he used to work with the Runaways uh, back when they were they were touring and I knew Dutch um, and and so he the I I can't remember which one came first I think the Def Leppard one came first he was living in the UK and he gives me a call long distance back in those days you know when you could barely hear what the other person was saying and he knew I played bass. And I was, you know, 15 or whatever years old at the time. Um, and then uh, he said, there's a group of these kids and they're getting together and they're looking for a bass player. And, I, and, and, you know, can you get to the UK? And I'm like, of course I can't get to the UK. I'm like a 15-year-old kid living in Orange County. It's like, how the hell am I going to get to the UK? But I was taught, he was like, no, no, I'm telling you, these guys are awesome. They're going to go places. You know, you, you could get this gig. Um, and I was like, and then he told me about the band. And I was like, it's, it's like, dad, I'm like, like into heavy metal. That's like, not really my thing. And uh, so that was the end of that. And then they became Def Leppard. And then, and then the thing that happened after that was he calls me back again. Now he's back in LA. And he said uh, that Joan Jett is getting a band together. She's going to go out do her own solo thing. And she's looking for a bass player. Will you audition? And I, I, I love the Runaways and I love Joan Jett. And I was like, hell yes, I'll audition. So there were, um, there, and this was for playing bass. There were uh, 26 bass players auditioned and I was number 25. Wow. And, and it was at SIR Studios in Los Angeles. And, and at this point in time, I'm, I, I guess I was 16. Um, I was either 16 or, yeah, I must've been 16. Uh, and, and so we go in there and they're like, there's Joan and I'm all starstruck. And I'm, you know, uh, of course I must've looked ridiculous. Cause I also had dyed black hair and I was <laughs> like a little male version of Joan Jett at the time with my, with my BC rich mockingbird bass. And I don't know if anybody's seen that these bases are huge. And it like, I looked even more ridiculous cause I was not even at my full height at that point. So, um, 
So we, we play and, and um, uh, I, I, don't, I think it was You Drive Me Wild, which was a runaway song, because uh, I was told like which ones to practice. Right. And, and we played the song and I was super, super nervous. And afterwards, she, she lifts her hands up, she slams them down on her guitar and she says, it's so fucking great to play with a real bass player again, man. That was awesome or great or whatever. And I was like... Oh gosh, that would thank you. And then we play a few more songs and, and she's just glowing. She's like, just like, you know, wow, this is like, this is fucking awesome, man. I'm so glad these other bass players we've auditioned were shit. And, and so, you know, like the audition's over and I pack up my bass um, and I'm walking out and I see number 26 in the hallway waiting for his audition. And, um, and, then number 26 goes in there and gets the gig. And what uh-huh. happened was later that night, I get a call from uh, Toby Mamis, who was Joan's manager. And the first thing he said when I answered the phone is he said, you missed it by that much. Oh, and I said, what, what happened? Like what was going on? And he said, the guy that after you was a good player but the difference is he's 18 and you're only 17. And if we go to Europe or they were planning to go to Europe, he said, I need to get a work permit for you in every country we go into. And he said, that was basically what tipped the scales. So he got it. Now, fast forward a hundred years. I run into Toby Mamis on LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) These are our lives now. And I sent him a message. I said, Toby, I just have to know all these years later, was it really just because of my age? And he says, I've still got to know. He said, he goes, David, it's worse than that. He said, the only reason you didn't get picked was because of your age. And as it turned out, Gary lied about his age. He was 15 years old. Oh, no. It was like, I'm like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, we didn't find out until just before they were like ready to go on tour. And he said, Joan was livid. And, but at that point in time, it was like, it was too uh, late. It was was too late. So, so then it got, then this, this chapter rolls on because then when um, I start playing with Berlin again, um, this is, I don't know, three, three years ago, whatever, we're doing a show in Las Vegas and, and Joan Jett's on the bill. (laughs) <laughs> and so we uh i didn't talk to joan before it was like this is a million years later and i don't look like i looked back then um so uh so she you know we're out there and we're doing our thing and i told terry about this this story and for some reason i'd never told her before so she was like well i've never heard this and she said will you tell that story when i bring you out on the stage because at that point i wasn't playing full time i just came out for a few random things Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <laughs> so we did, so we're, we're we, the Berlin starts the show and Joan's at the side of the stage and she's watching Berlin play. And, uh, and so then, you know, Terry brings me out and, and mentions that like, you know, because of course everybody there's a Joan Jett fan because she was headlining the, the show. <laughs> then she asked, do you want to, you know, David has a Joan Jett story. Do you want to hear? It? And they're all like, yeah, everyone wants to hear the Joan Jett story. And I'm looking back and Joan is like looking like, uh oh, there's a story here. And I begin telling the story and I'm occasionally looking back at Joan and her I, her eyes light up when she realizes like like she had no idea that I went on to be in Berlin. Um and so uh 
so we did the show and then I got off the stage. She comes up, she gives me a big hug. And she goes, man, I, I'm telling you, man, it was all, he fucking lied about his age. He fucking lied about his age. It was, and, and that, so we just talked a little bit about like, you know, she said, it, you know, it seems like you did pretty well. And, and you know, but, uh, um, but technically Joan Jett and the Blackhearts are in the rock and roll hall of fame and Berlin isn't. So there's that, but you know, yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, like you gotta be, I mean, are there days when you sit there and stare at the sky and wonder, shit, I wonder how my life would have been different had I, you know, made the cut or, you know, had, had the other guy just not lied. I mean, just I know, right. Moved I, over so cosmically, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know it was really weird. I I actually sent him on, on I found him on Facebook. Uh, Cause he's a, uh, I think he's a high school teacher now or was, wow. um, and he never responded, but I, I sent him a note um, on his what would would have been his fiftieth birthday, um, telling him that like you know like what I mean it was I was just making fun of the fact that he had turned fifty, so that was his own punishment for lying about his age. Yeah, wow, Dave. But uh, but yeah, so that yeah, and I do think about you know it could have been different. It could have you know <laughs> like if I'd gone to the UK and gotten into Def Leppard, what you know I don't know what horrible thing would have happened to me with the horrible luck that band has had no kidding um but uh or or the or the joan jett thing but i but you know i don't have i mean i've no no complaints about berlin i think i mean when i when i look back at berlin or i look back at the 80s first of all much more so now than i ever was back then i'm so proud to have been connected with that era of music because there were so many amazingly creative talents, just amazing music came out of the eighties. And it wasn't just in the, in the genre of, of new wave music. I think there was great rock and roll that was coming out. There was great country that was coming out. The eighties were just a fantastic decade for music. And I got to be like associated with that. So I, I'm very, very appreciative of that. And then, and then time history has been very kind to Berlin you know, Berlin is, is I, I look back and just think, you know, for, you know, they're, uh, you know, I'm happy. I'm proud to have been uh, in Berlin, you know, through that time. I think Berlin was a, a good band. And I feel like Berlin is, I feel that Berlin is a better band. Well, how, how do I do this in my head? I, I now feel that Berlin is a better band than I felt Berlin was in the 80s. There, I do think it did that right. Yeah, that, that works. I'm not going to try to diagram it as a sentence, but I, but I like the sentiment. <laughs> But yeah, cause, yeah. So I, so I guess I'm, I'm happy with the way it turned out. You know, if Berlin was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I guess I would be. You know, there would be the icing on the cake. But that's uh, not happening this year. No. When we've talked before and, and when we did the nice uh, Berlin live podcast on the ship this year, which I keep wanting to say last year, but it, is, it, it still is 2020. I, I think I mentioned that the TV show on VH1 called Bands Reunited. And when, when that came out, I was, I was just such a, addicted to every episode of that because I, I just thought it was the coolest idea ever. And I thought that the Berlin episode was, was really gr- good, but, but I, Looking back, I just kind of wonder that it just seems like, you know, now knowing what we know now about reality TV, it couldn't have played out. It could not have played out the way it looked on TV. Like 
surely like the, the, the VH1 had come to you ahead of time and said, hey, you know, we'd like to have you guys do this. Would you be interested? Because, I mean, I'm sure they didn't just show up at the airport that day with cameras and, go, you know, hey, David Diamond, sign this record and, and agree to reunite with Berlin. They actually, they, they were showing up like every day asking me. And I was like, guys, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I was like every day. And then one day I didn't say, no, that's not true. Um, <clears throat> no. So what it, it was, uh, Richard Blade was the, was the catalyst of this, this thing. Oh, that's I interesting. Get, so we knew Richard really well from, from Berlin days. So it wasn't sure. weird to me when Richard Blade called me, I was living in Northern California by that point. Um, and he called me and he said, hello, Dave, it's Richard Blade. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's pretty my, good, actually. End of my Richard Blade impersonation. <laughs> um, but he said that he was working with VH1 on a show uh, called VH1's Favorite Bands of the 80s or something like that. Um, and, and, uh, and he said, and I'd like to, you know, could I interview you about your time in Berlin? And I said, sure. Yeah. When do you want to do it? And he said, you know, he said like next Tuesday or I don't know, whatever. Thursday or whatever, um, that we'll send a, a, a camera crew up. And I thought like, well, you do, don't you just want to, I mean, we could just do it over the phone. You want to like, you know, or do you want me to fly down to LA if you want to do like a filming thing? Wouldn't that be a lot easier than sending an entire camera crew up here? And he said, no, no, no. We, you know, we just want to, um, you know, we, we, we just want to, you know, talk to you and just kind of, you know, get an, you know, your take on stuff. So I was like, all right. So, um, so then I, I, you know, then I was talking about like where we would meet and I said, you know, do, and he's like, Oh, just, you know, wherever you'll be. And I was like, okay, I don't understand this. It's like, you're bringing a crew up here and you just want to meet me wherever I happen to be that day. Uh-huh. And I, I didn't understand <laughs> <laughs> to me. I, I, I had no idea what they were actually trying to put together. All I was thinking was that these people are horribly inefficient. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> what an incredible waste of money. Um, so that day I was going flying and I told him I'll be at the airport. It was, it was, you know, the San Carlos airport, which I was flying out of, uh, was not far from uh, San Francisco where they were flying into. Um, and so I just fully expected to go to the airport and, you know, sit down with Richard and just do some talking head kind of interview thing. Um, and, uh, and then the ambush was, that was real. So oh, okay. that when they ran over and, and, uh, and I met a mayor for the first time and uh, all that was, that was all completely real. So that, you know, would we do the live show? And I was thinking, Oh my God, <laughs> I, I had no idea what the, you know, how we would pull that off or, and apparently John also had the same reservations as I found out, but I'll tell you one, one part that, of the Bandry United thing that was actually kind of funny was after I got home and realized what I had agreed to do, um, I realized I had no idea about modern synthesizers or how stuff was done now. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like, I mean, the only synthesizer I really knew how to use super well was a, a sequential profit five and they were long since defunct and gone. And, um, so, so I emailed Thomas Dolby because I, I knew I, I, I knew him from a different thing that we had we had worked on together. Um and uh and just asked him like how does how is it all done today? Like how would you, you know, and and unfortunately I did not get a response from him before we had to go down to LA and actually do the thing. I got a response from him after 
which was a, a very typical Thomas Dolby, well thought out, got philosophical about the state of music today and the fact that because they're interested in bands from the 80s is a sort of a, you know, a statement about what was, you know, it, it just it went all over, but it didn't tell me. <laughs> it didn't tell me what synthesizer to try to use, and it was too late anyway by that point in time. But but yeah, it was it was it was a good thing to get back. Berlin occupies such an important niche in, in the new wave genre, but I'm just kind of curious. You, you know, you someone who is a guitarist and a keyboardist. You know, do you have any albums or bands that you you have tucked away that just people would see and say, there's no way that David Diamond owns this album, or there's no way that I just saw David Diamond at a Kiss concert or something like that. I mean, what's, 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 the, what's the musical skeleton in your closet when it comes to, to bands that you, you know, maybe secretly admire? Um, well, <laughs> I don't, there's so many of them. See, okay. So first of all, you, and, and, You've got to put this into into perspective, and and I in fact it was on the '80s cruise. I heard Tom Bailey say this, and it was like a light bulb went off in my head. We were children of the '70s, right? We were not kids of the '80s. So so when we talk about the stuff that we loved when we were kids, it you know '80s hadn't happened yet, right? So I was I was all about Aerosmith. I was all about David Bowie. I still love these bands. Um, Blue Oyster Cult, <laughs> Blue Oyster Cult. I've also love a lot of country music. Um, I, I probably I remember when I was 14 years old listening to Barbara Streisand's <laughs> Greatest Hits <laughs> Volume Two <laughs> because I think she's such an amazing vocalist. Uh, so I'm kind of like I don't know. I go I go all over the uh, the place with my kind of historical. You know, the stuff I loved, loved Earth, Wind and Fire, loved the stylistics. Um, yeah. But then I also love Ultravox and, you know, and, and Gary Newman. And they, these were my influences that that sort of led me down the path to uh, to what happened with Berlin. Sure. So there's not you. It's not surprising to know that there's not a lot of Barbara Streisand influence <laughs> in my work with Berlin. No. <laughs> Although you will hear a little Aerosmith in my guitar playing with Berlin, but that, I guess. that's completely. I mean, that, that's that's respectable. I mean, and Bowie is probably if there's if there's a artist who probably gave birth to the '80s sound, it was probably Bowie. I mean, Bowie. I mean, before him, Velvet Underground, maybe, and then Bowie, and then Roxy Music, and then it kind of you know you slide into the talking heads and the cars and the yeah. police and it goes, it just kind of goes from there. So and I've had people it, when, when they find out like, cause when I was a kid, Aerosmith, Elton John and David Bowie were like, that's all I cared about. You know, when I was like 13, 14 years old, yeah. you know, and they said like, so was Bowie a big influence? And I, I just have to say, honestly, I'd never really understood what the hell Bowie was doing. <laughs> so I couldn't really say that it was an influence. Um, it was like, like somebody speaking a language I don't speak um, and asking whether that was an influence on how I communicate. You know, it's like, no, it sounds beautiful and it's, I'm, I'm amazed by it, but I don't have any idea what he's doing, uh, which I think was part of the reason I, you know, I loved him so much because there was, you know, you could, you could love Bowie and in loving Bowie, you got to love so many different artists. 
you know, it wasn't the, he was definitely not the one trick pony. So it was like the, the, you know, the different eras of Bowie, uh, you always got like a new gift from him. Um, and, and he was, I think it, it less, like, I don't think of him as an influence, but I definitely think of him as an inspiration um, that you can reinvent yourself and remain relevant. Um, you know, that's, I mean, that was, I think if, if, if Bowie taught musicians anything, it was that, you know, you, you don't need to be doing the same thing you've always been doing. Do, do you think that sort of is the way that Berlin has evolved too? And when you, when you listen to Transcendence, I mean, it doesn't, it, it obviously doesn't, it's obviously not Pleasure Victim Part 2. It's, it's Berlin today. I mean, the band has evolved as well. You know, that's kind of, it's, it's funny that we're, um, and I've told this story before, and it's, it's kind of a tough thing to say because it kind of almost sounds like I'm disrespecting Berlin, and I don't mean it to be that way. When, when we did Pleasure Victim, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. We just knew what we liked, and we were trying to emulate sounds that we liked and styles that we liked at that point in time. Um, you know, but we were really young. I mean, John was 26 and I thought John, <laughs> I thought John was like an old man at that point because I was 17, you know, when we were recording um, Pleasure Victim, you know, and Terry's just a few years older than I was. So I don't know, she was like, you know, 20 or somewhere in there. Um, and we didn't really know. We didn't have a strategy. We didn't have a plan. We just did what we thought we liked to do. Then that started to change on Love Life because now there was a lot of money involved. There, was a, there were not only just one, there were two major record labels involved and everybody had a say in everything and everybody had their opinion. Um, we had proper production because I mean, you know, we can all love Pleasure Victim, but you can't listen back to Pleasure Victim and just think, how did this possibly sound so bad and sell so well? <laughs> you know, it is, it's really such a bad sounding record, but um but yeah, and everything changed on Love Life. And, and we started, and I think at the point in Love Life, we didn't even recognize it yet, that we were letting outside influences start to stir the pot a bit, um, where we were holding on to what we liked, but we felt like, well, maybe we should listen to these people because they know how to sell records and how to make bands. And, and at that point in time, and we, we were coming off the success of Pleasure Victim, but we certainly weren't like an established household name band at that point in time. Uh, you know, so we recorded like all of Love Life. Mike Howlett was producing it um, and we liked it. You know, we thought Love Life was a, was a good record. Um, but then it was Geffen Records, uh, who's our label in North America, came back and said, yeah, it's a good record, but we don't hear a hit. So we need to deal with that. Um, and of course, you know, we didn't necessarily agree um, but, uh, but then it was like, oh, go, you know, Giorgio Moroder is willing to work with you on a few songs. 
Um, and so it was like, okay, well, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <We> can, Giorgio. <laughs> we'll fit that into our schedule. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, you know, and then we re-recorded Dancing in Berlin and, and No More Words. And of course, No More Words, you know, was a, was a hit. And, um, and the original version of No More Words most likely would not have been that hit. Um, it was, in my opinion, it was a lot more interesting but it was like Terry's vocal delivery was kind of like the old flying lizards. Like, you know, you're talking It all sounds fat. Like there's like not, it was, it was just crazy. Right. And, um, and there's, we've got the recording of this someplace. Somebody will have this, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so we, so that happened and then, you know, the record went out and the record was successful, but it was not as successful as pleasure victim, which was kind of confusing to us because it was a better production and there were more people involved and this really smart people were advising us on stuff. And somehow it did not do as well as that, that dumb happy accident of our debut. Um, and then I think, you know, and then because of internal conflicts, um, I left the band and the band went on to do count three and pray. And after I left and Matt and Rick um, um, were gone uh, so it was just John, Terry, and Rob. Uh, and at that point in time, you know, they had, I mean, because there was only the three of them. They didn't, you know, it was like a synth band without a synth player, uh, no guitar player. So they brought in people to do all this stuff. And I think at that point in time, Berlin really lost who it was um, because we just didn't. And, 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 I, and I, again, it took decades to look back at this and realize this, that, Berlin worked best when John and Terry and I were at the nucleus of the creative process. And if you take any one of the three of us out of it, it starts to go someplace different. Um, so it, it, and I think that's just what happened on, on count three and pray and with, with uh, take my breath away, it pulled it even further away. Cause that was, you know, that, that, you know, you've got, like I've often said that we've got Berlin fans and we've got take my breath away fans. Um, and we don't have a lot of people who tend to like all of it. You know, it's like people remember take my breath away or they remember the early days of Berlin. And so I, you know, I fast forward decades later and I look back and I love count three and pray. I think it was a fantastic record, but it was a disappointment to me at the time because it really felt like my band, although I was no longer in it had lost itself. Yeah. Um, and I, it wasn't until much later I could look back and truly love it. I mean, there were tracks on it that I thought were super strong, but I remember the demo versions of these songs and feeling like there was more emotion in it. And um, there was a, um, uh, the, the track Heartstrings, there was a, a recording of that um, from the early sessions where it was just a synthesizer and Terry. And I think it was the most beautiful thing that Berlin had ever done. You know, it was so stark and so emotional and her performance was stellar and the synth sounded great, but it was like when it, they, you know, they'd done the record and the record companies didn't like it and they came back to LA and they redid the record again uh, with Bob Ezrin producing and he just wanted to up the production on this stuff. Um, and it can't, you know, it was a super glossy record, but I felt like in some of those cases, like especially with Heartstrings, uh, it lost that emotion that it, it had originally. Another, each day. Another new 
you know, and then John was gone. And then when Terry reformed Berlin, um, you know, they did a number of records. But again, I mean, it's like, and, and it's not that they were bad. It's just that they didn't feel like Berlin to me. Um, and I never really knew why until John and Terry and I got together again before Transcendence. And it was like, finally, I think as adults, we could look at what was going on and just think, oh my gosh, this was what went wrong. Is that we just, without the, the mix of the three of us doing whatever we, and everything, and this is the thing, it's not like that we have like specific things that we do. We we each do lots of different things. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, it, it's really kind of difficult to say that, that, you know, it's, it's John's this and David's that and Terry's that, but somehow just the chemistry between the three of us, when we're working on stuff, it just kind of turns out cool. And, and, and not always, I mean, we, <laughs> we did some really bad stuff, but, um, <laughs> but, but we're able to like, get it, get something out of it. And when, and that when we first got back together again, John and I started working on tracks. This is before we had Terry singing on them. Um, but it absolutely sounded like love life part two. It was like, it was like, it picked up right at right where love life left off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were really excited about that. Uh, and then, then, you know, when Terry, in fact, we were doing these, uh, this recording up at my place in Truckee, California. So we're up here in the mountains working on this stuff. And then Terry came up and Terry's singing on this stuff. And we were just, beside ourselves with excitement we were just like oh, this is so cool this is like you know because it i mean i'm fast forwarding over some of the stuff like like john and i trying to figure out how the hell everything worked today because <laughs> 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 i have no i had no use for for uh you know digital audio recording sis you know blah 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 and all that stuff right um, so uh so yeah it worked out really well but and then we ended up you know kind of you know getting uh, an Australian production team involved. And then things started, go, you know, going, being pulled in a different direction. Um, but, uh, but it was, you know, because there were, there were folks who were concerned that like maybe a record that sounds like it picked up where love life left off is maybe not a good idea. Maybe we should go someplace different. So, um, so we did that with transcendence. I think transcendence, like with all records, I mean, I think there's some great tracks on it. I think there's some tracks that were like, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that track, but, um, but I do, it, it was, I think uh, out of all of it, the best part of it was for the three of us to realize that, that, that what we missed when we didn't have it was the three of us. Yeah. And that was kind of, yeah. So we know that now. Well, and we see it when we see the three of you together, we, we see the chemistry, we see the the bond. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's in more than the music. So just so glad you guys are back together. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it does. Yeah. Like when we, we do these like weekly, uh, like zoom calls now. Um, and it really is. I mean, to me, it's, it's like, you know, getting together with family, you know, whereas like all the, especially with the campaign and all that stuff, I mean, I, I'm talking with so many people I don't really know and meeting new people and all that kind of stuff. And I don't have a history with them. And, and virtually all of my, uh, my biological family is gone now. Um, so I realized it's like John and Terry are kind of like the, 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 the people who have known me, I mean, the, my mother, the, my uh, stepsister, the people who have known me longest, you know, so they're, they're definitely like family for me. So when we were, 
you know, like before this call, when we were on the phone talking about another show. I was just eager to like to see them again, you know, and to, and to see the whole band and to see, you know, our crew. And because uh, we when we said goodbye after the 80s cruise, we didn't realize that it was such a serious goodbye. You know, it was like, oh, we still had tons of shows booked. So yeah. it, it'll be good to see everybody again. Hey, this has been a great chat. I really enjoyed this. Uh, if any of the Berlin fans out there want to support my candidacy, tell them to go to diamond2020.com. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can donate they can endorse they can see it's like it's like i'm a candidate now it's, it's, it's i feel dirty i'll be out there tomorrow to help you fill out some fake ballots and we'll be fine <laughs> And there you have it. There's uh, David Diamond. What a fun conversation. I, mean, we, I had to trim that down because, I mean, he, he and I talked on for quite a bit. Yeah, like I said, I think he wanted to talk to you, Steve. He had some he stuff did. He's a you. great guy. Berlin is one yeah. of the best reasons to go on the cruise because they're one of those truly accessible bands. First of all, you'll see them everywhere. Yeah. And they genuinely want to talk to you. They want to they eat at the buffet just like us. Yes, they do. I, I think the thing that blew my mind the most was – he was almost in Joan Chetna Blackhearts and Def Leppard and or Def Leppard. How's yeah, that happen? That's crazy. I, I, yeah, I that I can't get my head around him and Def Leppard. No, that doesn't make any sense. And obviously that wasn't going to work out. But to come that close, that close to the Blackhearts, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I still think he's he he's in a winning scenario right now with, with Berlin. Yeah. It, you know, hindsight being what it is, I think it worked out okay for him, but. You just don't know. You don't know. You can't. It's not like you can rerun the experiment and see how it comes out. So, well, that's that's the whole that's the whole genius of the podcast time machine. And I think he's the one person. I didn't ask him the the, the podcast time machine question during our interview because we'd already asked him that when we were on the cruise. We did that long interview with Berlin. But yeah. I don't. I I I worry about David and the time machine because I mean he's got he's got a couple of moments that you really kind of want to go back to and think about, but. He seems totally happy with where he is, and uh, I, I wish him all the success in his uh, campaign for public office, and I, I really will make good on my uh, offer to go and fill out uh, absentee ballots if I have to. You can't do that. <laughs> no, I, this is America. We can do whatever we want. Uh, but, okay, okay. <laughs> by the way, how, how nuts is it to think that the next time we'll see Berlin won't be until March 2022? March 2022, which I can't even say. I don't even know how we're going to say it then. I can't say it now. It's weird. They're kind of a staple in our spring lineup. You know, I don't know what March is going to be like this next year without Berlin. Maybe they'll stop by and play in the backyard. That'd be great. You're nearby. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? <gasps> I might actually have to buy a plane ticket. The neighbors would murder me. <laughs> What's so all that noise? noise? It's Berlin. Shut the hell up. <laughs> so if you want to join us. We haven't talked about it much lately, but it's, it bears repeating now, especially more than any other time. The lineup for the 2022, which I said that time, fine, without any hiccups. Ooh, let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. Um, let me do it. Yeah, you could do it because I'm going to take three breaths because I'm like fatty out of shape. Oh, stop it. You ready? <clears throat> Here we go. 
The lineup for the 2022 edition of the 80s Cruise, the sixth sailing of the 80s Cruise, is as follows, and I quote, The Human League, 38 Special, Berlin, Belinda Carlisle, Morris Day in the Time, ABC, Dire Straits Legacy, Modern English, Jack Russell's Great White, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, A Flock of Seagulls, The Alarm, The Sugar Hill Gang, John Parr, and Johnny Hates Jazz. Also performing, Jesse's Girl, the Ultimate 80s Tribute Band, Depeche Mode Tribute Band, Strange Love, and the 80s Cruise Party Band, Trial by Fire. Still not enough? What else do they get, Steve? How about original MTV VJs Mark Goodman, Alan Hunter, and Nina Blackwood, along with SiriusXM first wave DJ Larry the Duck? Oh, and uh, those two dorks from Stuck in the 80s will be there, too. Hey, if you've never been on the cruise, when you book, because you will after this compelling uh, case that we just made, use the promo code STUCK when booking. If you're a first-time guest, you must use it at the time that you book, and you'll get $200 cabin credit. The uh, ship is the Royal Caribbean Mariner of the Seas. We sail March 6th through 12th, sailing from Port Canaveral to Nassau, St. Thomas, and St. Martin. Woot, woot. You know where I'd like to sail to right now? The The Seas. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the tone of listener mailbag, also known as Brad doing the ship sound. I guess. Oh, is, that, loves is that the new listener mailbag theme? I just like Maybe. to do the ship's horn. You do it really well. Anyway, we've got some this week. And these are all about, I think, two episodes ago, we had an episode. Two episodes ago, we had an episode about an episode. We had a PPTMN question about what tastes bring us back to the 80s. And I think I said, I don't remember. Oh, slushies. And Brad said cherry limeade from Sonic. And apparently Ooh, yes. you hit a chord with that. My so people, I'll let you my handle people it. have reached out. Yeah, so so let's let's start we off. Here. Some emails. Yeah, here we go. Donnie Gettle rhymes with footlong chili cheese dog. Writes, I felt like Brad and I were in the same car prepping to drag Maine when you mentioned getting a cherry limeade from Sonic. I actually grew up right behind the Sonic in Miami, Oklahoma. Pronounce it correctly, Brad, and I did. It's Miami. When people asked where I lived, I told them right behind Sonic, and they knew exactly where I meant. It was one of the turnaround spots on our drag to head back south on Maine. It's where Saturday night started. You would go to Sonic, get your cherry limeade, and head out down Maine and back, and Maine and back, and Maine and back, and Maine and back, and Maine back. Of course, in later years, other drinkable liquids, perhaps some cherry vodka, might have been added throughout the night. Don't drink and drive, kids. Thank you for bringing back that memory of some of my favorite teenage years. And it's all because of taste. Frankie say cherry limeade from Sonic, Donnie Gettle. I'm going to have to try that. I've never been to a Sonic well, do they have them in Florida? Yeah, they do, but but they're not really right around the corner or anything. Yeah, well, if you happen to be out and it's in the middle of the afternoon, they do a happy hour where all drinks are half price. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We have a second email, right? We got another letter. You know, you have to balance it. You talk to David Diamond. We also need to hear from our old friend Dave Dirt. Dave writes, damn, Brad's story about Sonic brought back so many memories. South Missouri was also Sonic territory, and Alls was also on the cruising strip. We'd head into town, go around the square, then loop around and go around Sonic. Lather, rinse, and repeat. Ad nauseum, or until someone was out of gas. Senior year, my ride was always one of the go-to rides. It was my family's Chevy Astro. (laughs) The party van! (laughs) We'd load up as many people as we could and cruise around until we found someone to buy booze for us. Then take off backroading for a while, guzzle the goods, and make our way back for round two. Just in time to see someone get into a fight on the square. 
There's always a fight on the square. Yeah, what's the deal with that? You know, I don't get it. It was always interesting trying to find someone to buy for us. When we got into upper grades, there was even a former classmate who was a cop who did so a couple times. <laughs> Pretty sure the statute of limitations is up on that one. I can't even remember the guy's name. In the back of the Sonic, though, was the Twilight Zone, the town arcade. I think I might have got in there maybe once. It was a dark, dirty joint where all the derelicts, dealers, and general no-goodniks hung out, or so we were told. I was never much of a video game guy anyway. I'd rather be with my buddies in some old cemetery drinking whatever hooch we were able to score. Okay, hold on a second. You, Dave Dirt, the heavy metal rocker, throwing the goat, laying down some sick, you know, face-melting licks on his guitar where you're afraid to go into the arcade have you seen the guys that hang out in the arcade i am one of those guys you should have nothing to be worried about (laughs) anyway he continues when i moved to st louis in 1991 there was no sonic and i was very sad i introduced my wife to the joys of sonic in the late 90s when we would take trips home and was overjoyed when the franchise finally made it up our way Anyway, here's to Sonic and going round and around in an endless loop in your Astrovan on a Friday night. Apparently, the kids have abandoned that practice these days. Those are great times, though. Thanks for the memories. Still stuck in the 80s. A day of de la dirt. That's great. Those are two epic stories. Thank you, guys. I guess the kids don't drag the main anymore. I don't know. We didn't do that here. I mean, I, I don't know if it was, I was in a bigger town or whatnot. Yeah, but there was no. Some people went to Clearwater Beach. Kids don't get their driver's license as as you know. It's not as big a deal to get your driver's license anymore. I some of the like my niece and nephew, they were eligible for their driver's licenses, and like it was like months before they got them. They were just like, ah, oh, you know, not interested. I'm like, not interested. I mean, I think the day that I got my driver's license was like the probably this one one of the top ten days of my life for sure. Definitely probably the top <laughs> ten. Definitely one of the top two up until the age of twenty. Well, and you weren't waiting around for it. I mean, in the dinky little town I lived in, the test administrator was only there once a week. So it was always like, oh, man, I have to wait five days after my 16th birthday to take my driving test till he's in town. <laughs> and that oh, no, was like, I, you know, you're waiting forever. I, I think I turned 16 on a Saturday and I, we went there on Monday. Like, I mean, it was, it was yeah. the summer. So, you know, I didn't have to take the day off from work or anything. But I was there like from your nine to fiver when you were fifteen and a half. <laughs> uh, you don't understand Mama Spears. She she ruled the the house with the iron fist. I mean, were you, you due were for another no, Steve? Yeah, yeah. I talked to her up today. doing chores. I tried not to bring up any of my my deep mental scars that she inflicted upon me forty years ago. She 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 That's no longer believes they happened. She's in like complete denial. It's like, oh, that's so, that's so silly, Steve. Where do you come up with these stories about me and the... That time I, I locked you in a cage with a raccoon. It never happened. <laughs> the thing and the stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, anyway, well. if you have a story, especially about a flavor of the 80s that you still remember, send it to us at podcast at sit80s.com. What's happening, hot stuff? Ah, by the gong, it must be time for Mystery Movie Moment. We'll play a snippet of a movie from the 80s. If you get it right, you're entered into a drawing for a... <gasps> Postal friendly bottle opener. Wow. Nice. I'm back, baby. It's like you never left. <laughs> I never will leave until they they'll pull my rigamortis's corp off of my microphone one day and that'll be it. But until then oh, we're gonna play a snippet. Be a sad day. <laughs> from the last show. Here you go. Commander, we have traveled halfway around the world 
to learn how our forces will interface with yours to help destroy Carrera. I hope your plan reflects greater precision than we have seen so far. That's Megaforce. Wow. That's pretty obscure since we just mentioned it that same exact show, but thank you very uh, much. I think it was the show before, but yeah. we Close enough. We went, <laughs> went deep, deep, deep into the archive for that one, and it shows take, in the winner's list, Steve. Yeah, take a deep breath and read them off. Here we go. Winners this week are, is, Rob Real. Nice. Who writes... Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. This week's quote is obviously from that classic 1980 action-adventure Hal Needham-directed flick, Megaforce. This is quite literally, and I believe he's using this correctly here, one of my favorite movies of the 80s. I kid you not. Motorcycles and dune buggies with machine guns and rockets? Check. Cool vehicle stunts? Check. Great cheesy lines? Check. I'm so glad and floored to hear you guys name-check this movie twice in two weeks. Thank you, Mr. Michael Beck. I'll just leave you with this chestnut. The good guys always win, even in the 80s. This has been, as always, surreal in Knoxville. Nice. I got to well, say, I feel like- <laughs> the passion that is shown in this letter and the excitement, I think, and as a solo winner of a Segi, I think that's an automatic bottle opener, Steve. Yep. Such we uh, designated in a previous episode, I believe. So, Rob, send us your postal-friendly uh, mailing address, and we will send you a postal-friendly bottle opener and some stickers and... Uh, Maybe we'll stain the envelope with a Cherryade Sonic. We'll see. Ugh, sticky. Uh, in the meantime, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. Hey, you all right, buddy? Yeah, I'm fine. Are you with our group? No, ma'am. I'm with the Economy Tour. If you know it, email us at brat podcast at sit80s.com and tune in next time to find out if you're a winner. <laughs> Ah, the magic refrain that is, name that 80s tune. Hey, we'll play a piece of an 80s tune, classic or not, you can decide. And uh, if you can determine its correct origin, creator, current status. Presenter. What key it was created in. Chart position. What label it was recorded on. You will be in contention for yet another postal-friendly bottle opener. Pay attention. Here was the feeling our oats today. I know. I'm sorry. It's the. I'm having a. We're just handing them I'm out. Having, We're just handing them out. I'm. Uh, you get a bottle. I'm opener. having a. You get a bottle opener. <laughs> I'm having a quote cherry limeade Sonic right now as we speak. If you know what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. Hold the limeade. Double bourbon. <laughs> Pretty much. Pay attention. Here was the clip from two weeks ago. That's far from over by Mr. Frank Stallone. Back in the race. I love that song. I gotta admit, I just, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. It is so cheesy, but it is that kind of cheese that you like. You know, we it's did like have some divided pizza. opinions. We did have some divided opinions on whether this is a turd in the punch bowl or a pop classic. And I'm leading pop classic. I have to say, you yeah, can't I not mean, be in a good mood when you hear this song. Yep, I, I, I'm sorry that it's in a bad movie, but yeah, is it really is that a Frank's bad fault? movie? 
I have not yeah. ever seen it. I guess it. if my voice goes really high like that, it's a bad I'm movie. I'm going to watch it for our dance movies Is in the it 80s. really a bad movie? <laughs> Yikes. Anyway, uh, read some winners. Apparently, we have a few. Winners this week include Greg and Kasemi. Got it. Dave Horn, Marie Mueller, Vertigo Roger, Mike from the Slotes, Alejandro Sticks, Cardoso Solis from Tijuana, Mexico, Brett Barger, Christian Lopez, Mike in New York, Joseph Perdue, Apology Acceptant, Captain Nita, Crispy Critter, DJ and Clinton, Mm. Stephen Ventura, Dave De La Dirt, Lou Sweet Lou Greeley, Peter Ryan, Scott Rubenstein, Kevin Pipe Wench, and Kyle K in Arkansas, who writes... The short snippet from your podcast this past Sunday is from none other than the obviously most talented of all the Stallone boys, Frank and his hit Far From Over. I recently saw that the movie Staying Alive was on Amazon Prime and started watching it again to see if it was as truly bad as I remember. There's lots of dancing, walking, music, and a little acting. Do I have to say that one of the best lines for this movie is at about the 59-minute mark as a jealous Tony Monero says... Everybody in the world knows you can't trust a guy that plays rhythm guitar. Swing. Ouch. Rick Ocasek is hurt. You play rhythm guitar, don't you, Brad? Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I can hold a guitar, and if I was going to be in a band, they might let me play rhythm because I can barely play as it is. Okay, let's spin the wheel and find out who uh, is going to win the second of our postal-friendly bottle openers. It's the most times I've ever had to say it in one show. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by the way, the last time we did this, I, I think I told everybody that I got road rash from a really bad bike accident. It's true. So I, I want to give you a health. I want to give you a health update since the wheel is still spinning. So that you just want to make road me make this wheel spin sound effect go forever. Go ahead. Go ahead. Make it spin some more. Go. Okay. Here we go. Oh, that's good. So the, the, the road rash is all healed, and today, out of shame, I finally took my bike to a, the bike repair shop across the street. Which is like real snooty place where they sell like the five hundred dollar, thousand dollar bikes. Yep, yep. And I, I've, been, I've been dreading doing it because I'm, I'm afraid that they're gonna like say, "Oh, why would you buy this you know, POS bike?" But no, they're real nice about it. Oh, that's good. They fixed it up, no, no problems, and I'm, I'm good to go. So nice. I feel vindicated. Just in time. Now for we the just wheel need to get stop. some chain mail. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I am gonna get some, uh, uh, some sort of. Me and maybe some gloves or something, because I still have like this piece of uh, the gravel stuck permanently in my palm that I have to dig out here eventually. Uh, okay, so the wheel has stopped now, <laughs> and so we're happy to announce that the winner of the Steve Spears Road Rash Award this week is Scott Rubenstein. Excellent. Woo-hoo. So uh, Scott, send us your uh, postal address, and we'll send you some swaggerino. Uh, in the meantime. Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. Brad, what happens if they know it? They should write in to the email address podcast at sit80s.com and tune in next time to find out if you're a winner. Now what happens? We'll be right back after this commercial break. And the winner of the cream pie contest is Sally Ward. Not cream pie. Dream pie. What's the difference? See, dream pie's really creamy. It's higher and lighter than plain cream pie. Mmm, hard to make? Easy. Take prepared dream whip, add two boxes of jello instant pudding and milk, whip it, pour it into a pie shell, then chill. Mmm, great cream pie. Not cream pie. Dream, dream pie. pie. From dream whip, whip topping mix and jello brand instant pudding. 
hey, we've got a few minutes left. Um, how should we spend it, Brad, besides talking about how much money I spent in the last three weeks on hydrogen peroxide for my knees? Uh, let's thank our new Patreon supporter, Steve. <laughs> well, that's better. Yeah, we do have some new supporters this week we'd like to thank. I know it seems like we're saying this every week, but we really do mean it every week. Steve and I truly appreciate the support and all the help covering the cost of keeping this podcast on the air everywhere. Forever and ever. Forever. (laughs) Until time immemorial and or the second coming of Krull. This week we'd like to thank Dallas Fitzgerald, Kirk Torley, Jamie Rhodes, Calvin Louie, and Chris Crispy Critter Bovitz. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show with David Diamond. I hope it was enough to convince you to come on the cruise if you haven't already because we're going to have a hell of a time. It's, think about it. we got a lot of party building up in us, and I think we need to express it. <laughs> but in the meantime, Brad and I remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. I remember searching for the perfect word. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music. And thanks for listening.